Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 12. I am your host, Stephen Oki. Today's episode features my conversation with Professor Matt Shadel of Marymount University. We recorded this conversation this past summer, and we did record it by phone, but I believe you will be pleasantly surprised by the sound quality. In our conversation, we talk about how 9-11 shaped Matt's interest in ethics and Catholic social teaching, the importance of history for doing ethics well, and how postmodernism shapes our students and our teaching. As always, please let us know what you think in the comments on iTunes or on the blog, and thank you so much for listening. Well, welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm here today with Matt Shadel of Marymount University, where he is an associate professor of theology and religious studies. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The first question we like to bring up or talk about is how did you come to be a theologian? What got you interested in theology? What were the steps or events that that really made this the kind of career you wanted to pursue? Sure. Uh, Two things, really. I went into college as an English major, but uh, I went to Hendricks College, which is a Methodist college in Arkansas. And being a, a religious school, they had a requirement to take two religion classes. So I I was going to get those out of the way quickly. So I took a two-part history of Christianity class. Mm-hmm. And looking at how Christians throughout the centuries had been raising these big questions kind of got me hooked. And from that point on, I was a religion major and went on to, to study theology. And then the the second thing was my senior year of college— through the Catholic campus ministry there, I went on a mission trip to Honduras, and I think that, maybe I didn't know it at the time, but that set me on the path to doing moral theology, mm. just seeing, you know, seeing the world from a different perspective, looking at how, you know, my own lifestyle was connected to the very different lifestyle of the the poor in other parts of the world, kind of raised some questions for me that I ended up trying to, to grapple with starting in graduate school. Were you were you raised Catholic? Actually no, I was raised Methodist. And okay. I, I was I should have I should have added that it was also taking and studying the history of Christianity that started raising the questions that led to my path to the Catholic Church. Did did that path sort of culminate during college or was it afterwards or Yeah, I I joined the I joined the Catholic Church my second year of college. Okay. I, I joined my senior year. So I Oh okay. Yeah yeah. So what were you before? Uh, kind of a Presbyterian, loose affiliation. Family wasn't super religious, but oh, okay. I, I I went to a Jesuit high school and Jesuit college, and so they they got their hooks in me, as they sometimes do. When you so can you say more about this kind of experience in your senior year about seeing other cultures, other ways of living, and how that kind of struck you? Or maybe maybe another well, way of asking that is you said this sort of had raised some questions and stuff for you, like. What questions did it raise for you, and how how were those questions that you pursued as a graduate student and, and after, uh, if they were questions you pursued in that way? Well, I think just, just to give one example, and this is uh, an experience that probably many people who make similar trips have, but then, you know, after spending, you know, it was only a week-long trip at that point, but after spending a week in Honduras and then coming back to the United States, mm-hmm. you know, the... The experience of going to Walmart or the grocery mm-hmm. store, just seeing, you know, shelf after shelf of food or, you know, whatever, you know, product you would ever need. 
was a real shock, you know, because it, it's like a, an everyday experience. Mm -hmm. And yet after having such a contrast experience, it makes you think about the, the way we live and how, you know, how we're connected with you know, the, the lack of access to those goods and other places in the world. And I, I should also add that I was able to go back to Honduras two other times when I was in graduate school for mm -hmm. longer periods of time over the summer. So by that point, in, as part of my graduate studies, I had studied a little bit of liberation theology, got a little more into Catholic social teaching. So I had a little bit more theological background to reflect on what I was experiencing, some of the, some of the issues that are raised in those places. So I think, you know, the, the two things were intertwined, my experience mm -hmm. abroad and, and what I had been studying in theology. So what one thing I might ask would be, what about what about this kind of experience and these questions pushed you to do, say, theology versus doing something like economics or international relations or, or sort of another perspective at looking at this experience of disparity, difference, uh, and so forth? That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it wasn't the money, so... <laughs> You know, that's a that's an interesting thing in that even though I do theology, it's always been interdisciplinary theology. Mm -hmm. So I have always, you know, kept an eye on international relations and politics and history and you know, my my dissertation had a significant international relations component. Mm -hmm. I had a political science professor on my committee. Mm. So so it's not as if I completely had to choose one and not the other. But I think, you know, like, like I was saying, even going back to my undergraduate experience and just taking those religion classes, I think, I think it was just the question of God and spirituality that got me hooked, mm -hmm. right? Some, something about that that drew me in more than any other discipline could. Yeah. I remember a professor in undergrad saying, because he, he did sort of anthropology of religion, sociology of religion, and he said that for him, you know, there was this central question that kind of occupied both both topic areas. But when he was thinking about what, what else did he want to read, he was much more interested in reading, say, Augustine than, you know, than maybe an unrelated sort of sociology text, right? Like, yeah. Like that was really sort of how he, how he f situated himself academically in that way. So, yeah, that makes sense. Uh -huh. That's helpful. What would be, you know, like I know you've written on, you know, war and peace ethics, and uh, and I think that's what your dissertation was on, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What What about then that set of questions draws you or excites you? Like what? It, or what is it? Maybe broadly about the like the Catholic social teaching tradition that that makes you want to do theology. I don't know if that's the best. Well, way to I ask can. That, but yeah. I mean, two two separate things. But I mean, sure, war sure, and yeah. peace. I think. I think it was just. You know the the moment in history. You know, I started mm. graduate school in two thousand and one. Oh, okay. And, and I, I remember. I remember very vividly waking up on the morning of September 11th mm -hmm. and, you know, seeing everything on the news. 
and I I was I was just in a this was in Dayton Ohio at the University mm. of Dayton and I I was just in a daze and that afternoon I was supposed to have a class I think and I just <laughs> showed up at the university and there there was no one there no one mm. walking around I just went up to the office where the class was going to be and and the secretary was like what are you doing here and it's like I'm here for class and she's like everything got canceled yeah. <laughs> and uh so I think it was just, you know, at that historical moment, part of the experience was all of these questions we were dealing with as a nation mm-hmm. about Afghanistan and then a couple of years later, Iraq. It was just hard not to, to be thinking about those things. So I was just drawn into thinking about them theologically and ethically. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then by distinction, then, was there anything in particular or a crystallizing event that drew you into Catholic social teaching, or was that more of a sort of broad interest? I, I just, I just think it was Same the thing. natural sort of thing, studying, studying theology and learning more about that tradition that I got into it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what else to say. Yeah. <laughs> That's fa- it's fair enough. Who would you say have been some significant influences on in, on you? in your development as a theologian or another way to kind of go with that question would be what would be some, you know, major texts that you have read that have had a significant influence on you? Well, I, I was going to go in a different direction, a different kind of influence rather than sure. like the great, absolutely. the great text. I was going to talk more of a personal influence. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, you know, one of my professors at the university of Dayton, actually my dissertation director, Bill Portier, mm-hmm. which I think it's kind of a, an unusual relationship because he's more of a historian than an ethicist. So how how did he, you know, how did mm. we end up connecting? But I think I think the one the one thing I learned from him well not not the one thing but <laughs> the one one key thing I learned from him is to look at things historically. Mm-hmm. So just just an, as an example. I was at a conference a few weeks ago, and uh, the the speaker was presenting. And one one thing she said really stuck out to me. It was something like, you know, how how can we understand this concept? To to understand it, we must look at the history. And I said, yes, that's exactly right. And I think I think that's actually not that common in ethics because mm. ethics is so present focused. You know, the issues that we're facing. So I think. A lot of times we ethicists don't pay enough attention to the history, not just the history of whatever issue we're talking about, but the history of the concepts we're using mm-hmm. to to analyze that. So, and I don't think, you know, this idea of historical theology, I think, you know, we get this idea that it means going back to Aquinas or Augustine, and that's definitely important, but I don't think it has to be quite like that. It can even be, you know, looking at past few decades. Mm-hmm. So so one of the things I'm most proud of was an article I wrote looking at this idea in the, in the ethics of war and peace, this idea of the presumption against violence mm-hmm. or the presumption against war, which only, you know, that, that term only starts being used in the 1970s. So what mm-hmm. I did was look at how that term was used and how it was debated. And what I found was people were actually using that term in three different ways mm-hmm. and that that was contributing to the disagreement that they were using the term in somewhat different ways. So what I wanted to do was disentangle that, but just, you know, even to get that insight, 
I had to look at it historically instead of just jumping right into the debate. Do you do you think that that ethics paying less attention to history is just kind of because of you know ethics is trying to respond to current contemporary issues and, and so forth? Is it is it just that? Is it a methodological difference? Is it is it has that something to do with the way that sort of ethicists and historical theologians are trained? Do you have any sense for for why? You, why that might be? I mean, I think I think just in general, in any discipline or subdiscipline, I think there's hesitation or a difficulty about thinking historically in the way I'm talking about that mm-hmm. uh, that the the terms or the concepts we use have a history. I think I just think that's just sort of difficult in general. But yeah, I think there is something specific to ethics that we don't always think that way. Like I said. It's more of a present-focused discipline that maybe the the sense of urgency about whatever it is we're talking or writing about maybe makes us less attentive to to the history of to the history of how we're talking about that issue. Mm-hmm. With this specific question about presumption in just war, then like, can you can you uh, I mean can you kind of say something about what are the the different senses in which presumption is being used and how this is kind of an example of or deepen how this is an example of a good historical reading of this discussion? Can you rephrase that question? Can you in a sense kind of summarize what it is that you found in this specific question as a sort of example of this larger theme of bringing history into into ethical reflection? Sure. I ask in part because I'm also very interested in, in war and peace questions, and so I I saw okay. your article listed, and then it, it I didn't have time to actually get to it. So I well, I I think the the main thing I found was there's there's actually two main usages for the phrase the presumption against violence, mm-hmm. and the first of these is a recognition that war always involves death and destruction. Right, and it's not something to be entered into lightly, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is Augustine's sense that even even when you're fighting a just war, it should be done with a certain regret, right? Okay. That that it has to be done. I think that's one sense of what people mean by the presumption against violence, and that's why we have these criteria to to limit when when we resort to war. Mm-hmm. But then the second sense, which was often added to the first, and, and I think the part of the problem was not clearly distinguished from the first, is that people would use this concept of a presumption against violence as a method for making that decision on whether war is justified, right? This idea of weighing presumptions, weighing one mm-hmm. against the other. And, and what I found was that while the first one is has a very solid basis in the tradition, the second one doesn't. Mm. But then what I also found was this whole other school of thought that rejected the idea of the presumption against violence. In the process of rejecting that second understanding, threw out the first as well. They threw out most of the tradition's considerations of the destructive impact mm. of war, and they end up having a more, just just use the technical term, a more deontological view mm-hmm. of the just war theory with okay. le- less focus on the teleological elements. Okay. So and more, so more duty oriented. Yeah. Right. Like like so they they talk about there's a presumption for justice. Right. Mm-hmm. We have to you know resort to war 
to you know promote justice. But I think this is where you get into the, into the messiness of history. But but it's these thinkers who end up supporting the war in Iraq, mm. and and I think part of that was that they've got they're only looking at part of this tradition about the justice side, but but giving you know they they'll talk about things like proportionality you know how you know is is this war going to do more damage than good they would consider those prudential matters mm-hmm. and then they just kind of get ignored or swept off the table mm-hmm. i mean it seems like sometimes the language of prudential judgment is is thrown in as a way of saying you do what you think and i'll do what i think um, yeah i think this, this feeds into that now i think you know some of some of the people i'm talking about they're they're more sophisticated than that but i just think that tendency is there for things that get labeled prudential to be considered less serious. Mm-hmm. Good. So what would you, what are the maybe big questions or, or projects that you're working on now? Uh, sure. So the, the really big project I'm working on now is a book length manuscript on the development of how Catholics have thought about the economy and economic life since mm. world war two. Hmm. So it's gonna it's gonna include such good things as liberation theology and then you know the question of Marxism. It's gonna look at some of the American neoconservatives and progressive Catholics and their disagreements and you know analysis of the the major documents of Catholic social teachings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, starting with John the Twenty Third. So uh, pretty, I'm pretty excited about this. I'm yeah. trying to to wrap up some of the first half of this. Are you are you situating that more as a as a textbook or as a monograph or? Oh, it's, it it would definitely be more of a monograph. It gets yeah. into some pretty pretty heavy duty sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, is there like a through line to it in terms of Catholic thought on the economy, or is it much more messy uh, in that sense? You mean by a through line, you just mean like a, a common thread through the whole thing? Uh, well, I, I mean, there's there's the common question of of, the, of Catholic thought on the economy right, post World War II. Like, like, so I, I mean, I get that in terms of the scope of it, but beyond what sets the scope of the text, is there a through line in terms of the the argument of what that is? Or yeah, okay, does that make sense? Yeah, okay. I, I think like or at least at least one common thread I think that that's gonna show up in this is that. Throughout, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of evolution in Catholic social teaching mm-hmm. on the economy. I think sometimes that gets downplayed, but, but I think even so, one thread that you see throughout it all is this sense that the modern capitalist economy has disrupted. This, this may be an overstatement, but disrupted the communities that make life human, mm-hmm. right? The communities where we have face-to-face encounter, like mm-hmm. the family, our neighborhoods, all of these cultural associations, right? Mm-hmm. That there's the the pull of the market, this commodification, this this way of relating to other people that that comes about through the modern capitalist economy disrupts those things. Mm-hmm. So I think the the common thread of Catholic social teaching is how to how to reconstruct that community, how to mm-hmm. how do we rebuild mm-hmm. what's been disrupted, right? And I think I think that's part of what some of the the documents of the past few decades are getting at by solidarity, the sense that we mm-hmm. need to constantly be building a sense of 
of community, not, you know, not to abolish the capitalist economy, but to transform it from within. I think mm-hmm. that's a, a theme I'm going to bring out, like yeah. this working from within to transform it, to sort of humanize the economy from within. Is that, I'm thinking about the role of kind of individualism or an individualist mentality within that. And that seems to be, you know, one of the, as, as that has become more and more, I think the mindset among people in the West has been one of the factors kind of driving breakdown in community or breakdown a sense of social bonds. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's just some of the, the interesting things I've been working on this week, right? There's the sense in which the economic way of thinking considers each of us as an abstraction, just yeah. as an abstract individual. And so even even our everyday economic activity, we think of ourselves in that way to, to some extent, mm-hmm. right? And I think that, you know, contributes to this sense of individualism. And the other thing I've been writing about recently is part of, just part of, just, just to throw this out, part of postmodern life is what some sociologists call individualization, mm. which which doesn't just mean becoming an individual, but it means the sense that Culturally, we are told that our our responsibility is to make ourselves, to to fashion ourselves, right? Whereas in the mm-hmm. past, you know, who you were was largely just given to you, mm-hmm. right? But but today, we have the responsibility to make ourselves who mm-hmm. we want to be, right? Yeah. And and I think that contributes to a sense of individualism if we lose sight of the fact that that we are drawing on the resources that have been provided to us to mm-hmm. craft that self, right? I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it in itself, but if we think of this as a self-sufficient process yeah. that we're, you know, creating ourselves ex nihilo, right, then then we become individualistic. But if we recognize our dependence on others, on the community, and ultimately mm-hmm. on God for the for the self we're fashioning, then I think we have a more positive approach. I mean, it seems like a, another way of saying this is that this sense of modern capitalism has a particular anthropology that is different from sort of a maybe more traditional Catholic or Christian anthropology, and that this is one of the things that Catholic social teaching has been resisting. Yeah, or at least there's sort of a, a dominant anthropology mm-hmm. working there. And and one of the one of the interesting things is that well you know speaking of influences right now I'm really uh, influenced by a, a Belgian theologian Levin Bova and mm-hmm. one thing he talks about is that the way the the way the market works today is actually that that idea that it has an anthropology is actually hidden in the sense that that we live with the perception that we have a choice. Mm-hmm. Right, that we have a choice about our lifestyle. We have a choice, you know, about what's important, about what, you know, even a choice about, you know, what what the meaning of it all is. Mm-hmm. But but what's actually hidden is the idea that that it's all about choice, right? That mm-hmm. that it's that it actually kind of reduces everything to a consumer choice. So there's this underlying anthropology, even even though it kind of gives us the sense that there is there is none that we get to choose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A further question I have then, as you're kind of talking about the work that you're doing and all of that, uh, is one, how does how do these interests and how does this focus feed into your teaching, 
right? Like, like theologian is teacher. What does that, what does that mean for you? Do these concepts uh, and topics shape what you teach? Are these like the main topics that you teach? Do they, do they come out in your engagement with students? Well, a, a couple of things I was thinking about is I just had this really interesting experience in the fall of this past year. So I, I just started teaching at Marymount and I was, this is hard to believe, but I was actually teaching an introductory theology class for the first time. And <laughs> how did, how did and, you get away with it this long without doing that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a previous institution at, at uh, Loris College in Dubuque, Iowa. They don't, they don't actually have huh. a required intro to theology class. They, they have an intro class for majors, mm-hmm. but it's actually combined with intro to religious studies. And I did teach that once, I, sh- I should be honest. But, but, but anyway, so but at the same time, I was reading some of this about, you know, the postmodern context for theology. And I was just thinking, you know, my class is just a laboratory for this, mm. right? My class is a laboratory for postmodern religion because I've got, you know, I've got some students who are Catholic, but I've got some students who are spiritual but not religious. I've got some Muslim students, right? And got, you know, some students who are non-denominational Christian, that they have this sense that I'm Christian, but doctrine doesn't really matter that much, mm-hmm. right? So all of these different varieties of people seeking religious meaning and significance, you know, they're, they're right here in my classroom, right? And so they, you know, they you know, this little laboratory of my classroom and what I was reading, they were all just sort of feeding into each other. And it was, it was a a really nice experience. And, and then also, you know, my Catholic social teaching class this past spring, you know, we started this semester in a way that, that dovetailed with what I'm working on too. I was just asking them, what is, what does it mean to you to be a modern person, mm-hmm. right? So we talked about all of the things that, that, you know, in our own understanding define us as modern, and then we just link that to some of these broad changes that have been, have been occurring in Western society, and that kind of opened up our discussion of Catholic social teaching as a response to modernity, some mm-hmm. of these issues, some of these problems that arise in the, in the modern age. Do you, do you find, I know you said you asked that question of your, your Catholic social teaching students, but do you find that especially those who are in the introductory class have a a sense for what it means to be in a postmodern age? Uh, is that a, a thing that is in any way kind of consciously thematized for them, or is it a thing that comes to make sense, or or not for them? Do you think? Yeah, I I, sh- I should say yeah. That wasn't really something that was a topic of discussion for the class. Like, what does it mean to be postmodern? What is this postmodern religious experience? That was something more that I was thinking about to kind of guide my approach to teaching them theology. You know, how, how do I teach theology in a way that makes sense in this context? Right. Cause I think, you know, I was looking at the textbooks and looking at people's syllabi and things. And I just think the way it's taught assumes certain things that aren't really true anymore, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, we start with start with the doctrine of God and the Trinity and then move to Christ. But if if they don't really have a, a sense of God, the doctrine of God aren't going to make a lot of sense. Yeah. So, so I think we, gotta, we have to start somewhere else that will, you know, make, make more sense to, to the students we actually have. Do you find 
Or do you have difficulty in teaching theology in that kind of introductory level? And I, I ask this because this is a difficulty I, I face. But do you have a difficulty that stem that in any way stems from like a, a student sort of just like lack of kind of basic assumed knowledge, right? Like I find a lot. I, I like I, I so I, t- I teach our kind of introductory Christian theology class, and that that class as structured had originally had very very little Bible in it. And then uh-huh. I discovered fairly quickly that <laughs> if I didn't spend at least, you know, a little bit of time going over some, you know, basic Bible stories and narratives and things like that, then the class was not going to go well. And they were things that, you know, maybe, you know, in a previous generation or previous decade might have been assumed knowledge, but now are much more, it's just not, it's not on students' radar. Is that yeah. a thing that you found or a thing that you have a... Like a, a a good pedagogical response to or yeah I mean that's a, that's a constant problem right the students not coming in with the background knowledge that you would like right and and you know like I said I've got a variety of students people mm-hmm. you know without yeah. much religious background at all or you know Muslim students or or things and and actually a lot of times even the Catholic students aren't very informed mm-hmm. right they don't really know much about their own faith you know I I don't really have the Silver bullet pedagogy <laughs> to to deal with that. Um, well, let me know I when think, you do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and vice versa. You know, you mentioned even familiarity with scripture. So, in my intro to theology class, one of the first things we do is actually just read straight through the Gospel of Matthew, mm. right? So, because because what I want to communicate is the sense of a life of faith, right? Looking mm-hmm. at the life of Jesus as a as a narrative about you know his his experience of God, uh, the way the people around him experience him mm-hmm. right as as the starting point for theology, right because I think that's a better starting point than just you know looking at do- the doctrine of God sure right because that that actually is where faith begins is the the experience of the person of Jesus so mm-hmm. so I like to start with that and you know, going back to your question, that does at least give them a starting point of familiarity with this narrative, you know, some of the parables, things like that. Yeah, and I, I yeah, that, and, and kind of just the, just the experience of wonder. You yeah. You know, like, the, it seems to be something that a lot of students maybe don't get the opportunity to reflect on, uh, and maybe they don't want to, I don't know. But introducing that as a way of getting into religion versus, I think what they maybe tend to expect, and I... Every semester, I have a student who who says, "I was not looking forward to a religion class, but but this this actually worked out for me really well." They seem to expect a class that is a lot more about rules and things that they don't like. <laughs> yeah, and, and and not not that there aren't those things, but that that seems to be the what they assume the kind of the basis or foundation for it all is, and getting into questions of wonder and narrative and purpose seem to help navigate that a little better, I think. Well, I, I agree that part of this would be to allow them to express wonder, or the, the term I use is attraction, to mm-hmm. the, the narrative of Jesus. But I would also add the other side of that is also I want to encourage the ability to be disturbed by the story, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, I, I mean, that's one thing we talk about in the classes. You can't really understand the gospel unless you understand why a lot of the people around Jesus are disturbed. Yeah. Right? And uh, it's it's okay for you to be disturbed by this story, too, to mm-hmm. be disturbed by 
some of the things he does and says, right? That one one thing I say is if you know, if you're a religious person and nobody's disturbed by you, you're not doing it right. <laughs> right. So and I think that, you know, going back to that question of pedagogy, I think that is very important is for students to be able to express not only when they're attracted to something, but that they're disturbed by it, to raise those questions about yeah. it, to feel comfortable doing that. Because I think I think that's part of this change in context, right? Mm-hmm. Is that that maybe you know, several decades ago, the way you would teach theology is just assuming that everybody is drawn to this. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of raise that point where you get to that point where nobody wants to raise a, a challenging question or nobody wants to admit that, that they find something disturbing. But if you kind of open it up, then I think people get more interested if they feel yeah. comfortable that they can raise a, a challenging question about it. Yeah, that's interesting. I know... I, I sometimes struggled with that with students where like we'll talk about, you know, Noah or or the plagues of Egypt and they'll you know, they'll have those questions like why why is God murdering people? <laughs> and, yeah. And and things like that. And and Yeah, we seem to keep coming back to Noah in my summer class. Like I really yeah. don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> why why does God just get so frustrating and kills everybody, but then you know, things just go back to the way they were anyway and that God seems okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a way that these narratives, like, I think a lot of, you know, the students who are familiar with, with these stories, they, you know, they have the, the kind of, you know, Bible storybook picture and they know the basic events and they know Noah has an ark and there's a flood, but they don't think about, you know, all the things that are glossed over in the story. And I, you know, like I, I recently, I recently watched the, the Noah movie with Russell Crowe and, one of the things I appreciated about it is it had never occurred to me in in imagining that story that the people who are not on the ark would have like floated around and survived for a while. <laughs> and there's this scene in the movie where the family's all sitting inside and they're hearing these people like screaming and crying outside. And it's one of those little like lacuna that just had not popped in my imagination and, and now is yeah. you know kind of seared there. Now, I I agree, and I think the one thing that also gets right is that after after it's all over, the the people the the survivors have you know basically what we would call post traumatic yeah uh, exactly syndrome yeah, right that, yeah that they've just gone through like they basically just witnessed everybody else on earth get killed <laughs> right that you don't just you know walk away from that yeah you're, yeah. you're affected by that and there there's something about you know, breaking that open with students that is, is really refreshing and challenging because when, when they do have, you know, some basic scriptural literacy in a lot of cases, it's still very, you know, sanitized or, or clinical. It's very clean. And there's not, there's not the same recognition of the, as you were saying, you know, the things that are disturbing. Yeah. I, I find a lot with, you know, my own teaching style. I tend to teach scripture somewhat irreverently and, you know, I, I make jokes about how, like, Esau is the first redhead, and, you know, he's the beginning of anti-ginger bias and, and, and things like this. <laughs> and, you know, fairly quickly students recognize that it's it's okay to have questions and to challenge that text in a way that maybe yeah. they, they, they feel nervous about beforehand. So, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. One, one question I always have for people, and this is perhaps the most selfish of my questions, is the the kind of day-to-day craft question which is 
how is it that you kind of organize your time or organize your projects or, you know, arrange your week so that you can manage doing, you know, doing the teaching side of theology, doing the research and scholarship side of theology, uh, uh-huh. and, and still remain a human person. Um, and, and I mean, not to mention, you know, the, the, you know, service and, you know, committees and all those kind of things too, but especially how, how do you make it so that you can be successful at doing theology, I guess, is the way, way to put that. Well, I'm, I'm very efficient with my time. I've actually written an article as we've been doing this interview. <laughs> um, no, you had me going for a second. <laughs> you know, uh, that's another thing where I don't have a silver bullet, and I am probably probably have bad habits. I tend to, you know, do my writing in binges, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, they say if you really want to be productive, you got to do a little here and a little there. I think I, I don't know. I just I just do the best I can with the time I have. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I don't know. Can you? If I find out the question, maybe. Yeah, I mean, if I find out later that you're keeping all the secrets to yourself, I'll be I'll be very upset. But <laughs> well, maybe another way to put it is: Do you have any you know like tricks or tactics that work really well for you? Do you have a way of kind of like? Not not like layering projects, but maybe sequencing projects that, you know, sort of build on one another or, you know, even in the midst of, you know, working on a manuscript now, what do you find that it works really well for you in, in, in doing that? And what are things that you maybe wish you could avoid or, or bad habits that you that you have? I mean, that's another way of thinking about it. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know if any of these count as secrets, but I think the thing you know, one thing is to not get overextended. So if you're working on a major project, mm-hmm. you know, when conference call calls for papers come around or, or things like that, try to find something that, you know, make a proposal that's something you were going to do anyway, mm-hmm. right? Something that's part of this larger project, right? So, so that way you're not, you know, dividing yourself like, oh, I'm trying to finish this book, but now I've got to write this paper for the conference on something completely different, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're sort of progressing along your larger goals, even while you're accomplishing smaller things along the way. Or, you know, sometimes, you know, you can't do that. So there was um, a conference on military ethics that I couldn't really pass up. So I was, mm-hmm. you know, what what could I do? So So I actually... This is going to sound bad, but I, you know, I, I actually chose one that was analyzing a couple of films, right? So that way I don't have to read a lot. I just watch a couple of movies, <laughs> read a couple of books, and I'm done, right? So, but you know, it, it was very good. It was just like I was kind of strategic about the sort of thing I could do mm-hmm. and what work would be necessary to do it because I wanted to put most of my energy somewhere else. Yeah. But you know, you said. You know, like you said, I do have bad habits, too, things I could do better, like finding smaller chunks of time to do writing. I really I really have this bad habit of, well, if I if I don't have enough time to really make some progress on this, I won't even get started. Yeah. Right. When I, I just can't do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've learned that's a real problem for me, too. When I was a grad student, I had lots of big blocks of time and, and, and now I don't. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, like I'll be finishing up my office hours. And, oh, I got 20, 20 minutes left. What am I going to do in 20 minutes? So then I spend 20 minutes, you know, looking at BuzzFeed or something. Right. <laughs> so, right. But that was, that was 20 minutes. I could have written a paragraph or, you know, organized some of my notes so they're ready the next time or whatever. Right. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. 
So as we maybe start to wrap up, then one kind of last big question I have is what advice would you have for, you know, younger, not yet tenured theologians, maybe those even still as graduate students, you know, beginnings of career and so forth? It's not really career advice, but my piece of advice would be to to read outside your discipline, even outside the discipline of theology. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's good to have at least one area outside of theology that you know fairly well. Mm-hmm. And I think not not only does that you know give you different opportunities for your own theology. So like I was talking about how. A lot of my work is interdisciplinary with, you know, international relations or economics. But, but I think it just gives you, even even if you never do that, it gives you a, a, a new perspective on your own discipline, right? Learning, you know, how how discussion takes place in this other discipline. You know, mm-hmm. how do they how do they do it, right? It kind of, you know, you don't take for granted the way things are in the field of theology. You can kind of see it from the outside almost, right, that, mm-hmm. you know, hey, we, we do some things that are pretty funny compared to the way other disciplines in the academy do things, or maybe, you know, maybe one, there's there's things we get right that other people don't, yeah. so. Yeah, all right, good. All right, so even, even, you know, read a journal, keep up with a journal or two in another discipline, even if you never, even if you never put it in a footnote or anything, you know, you're getting exposed to discourse in in a discipline that's different from your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good advice. I like that. <laughs> so so to close, we have a, a, a less serious five-question survey uh, sure. to help get to know you a little better. So first off, what is your favorite biblical name? Well, Matthew, of course. Right. Um, <laughs> no, let me let me think about that. I mean, it's okay to go with the you know the, the self serving answer. <laughs> I I would yeah, probably well, go with Stephen. Know, I I say Matthew. One one thing that comes to mind is the I think he's the guy that gets put in charge of Jerusalem when they return from the exile, or maybe before mm. the exile. Zerubbabel. Nice, nice. That's a, That's a good nice. one. That's a good one. All right, number two, and you can go either way on this question. What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song? <laughs> you know, you you mentioned this one to me. I was thinking about it. I'm I'm terrible with remembering the names of things, but mm-hmm. there's one or maybe even two hymns that that we have that that actually the tune comes from Gustav Holst's The Planets, and in mm-hmm. particular from Jupiter. Yep. And actually. I did some research, and actually, originally, say he made it into a patriotic hymn. I vow to thee, hmm. my country, but somehow we've turned it into religious hymns. But but I really like those. And then the things I always come back to were the things that they sung when I joined the Catholic Church on that hmm. Easter vigil, and we also things we used at our wedding. Those are the ones that kind of have the the, the greatest significance for me. Mm-hmm. So a couple. Like taste and see, that mm-hmm. was pretty familiar. And then I am the bread of life. I'd say those are a couple of my favorites. I'm impressed that you remember the music from the Easter Vigil where you came into the church. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah. remember, I don't remember it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I remember a lot of other things about that day, but anyway, uh, yeah, interesting. Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? 
Everybody laughs at this question, but... Well, because it presumes that we're saints. <laughs> it's, it's hopeful, though. It's a hopeful question. <laughs> I don't know if this makes any sense, but I would be the patron saint of people who are on the verge of just trying to get it together. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, was, cate- it's a good category. I was, <laughs> I was just... You know, you just asked me that question. I'm looking around my office. I've still got, you know, pictures I haven't hung on the wall and, and things. <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm like this close. I just haven't quite got it all together yet. I haven't put my office together yet. haven't quite wrapped up that manuscript, right? So, like, I'm always on the verge of getting it together. I, I think if you did become that patron saint, you would you would be getting a lot, a lot of prayers. <laughs> I think it'd be a lot it'd of be people. Very popular. Yeah, I think it'd be a very popular saint. <laughs> <laughs> Number four, what profession other than your own do you think you would have liked to have attempted or would have been good at? You know, had theology not ended up being your calling. That's a good question. Well, just just to be kind of silly about it, when I was when I was growing up as a kid, I was always interested in dinosaurs. You know, I've always wondered what if. What if I grew up to be like a paleontologist? Like I just Ooh. went around the world and, and dug in the dirt looking for bones. <laughs> nice. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there was. I'd probably make a good lawyer too. <laughs> Fair enough. Paleontologist or lawyer? There yeah. You go. Yeah, yeah. That's a good. Uh, that's a good combo right there. And then last question: What do you think the title of your biography or autobiography would be? <laughs> it together no uh, i don't know <laughs> tough question these are supposed to be the fun questions these are the hardest ones. they they reveal something about you though so so the title of my biography yeah or, or autobiography if you know you decide well, right, you right, right. To write this yourself I... how about this it's gonna be theological but all right pursue pursuing the encounter with christ nice that's good <laughs> i like that because i think you know, just just to explain a little bit, I think that that would be what I like to sum up my life. You know, through through my encounters with other people, through through my work, through my reading and writing, through my teaching. I think through it all, it's a pursuit of, of finding Christ in in the people, in the the the, the reflection on faith and theology. I think that's mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. Nice. Yeah, I think that sounds really great. Well, Matt, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, oh, you're welcome. Thanks for, thanks for interviewing me. Yeah, absolutely. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.